Well, we have three kids, as many of you know. <laughs> we have three kids, 14, 11, and 3. And uh, we are, praise Jesus, actually and forever, out of diapers. <laughs> Please, Lord, make those words true. I, I used to think with our first kid, I used to think with our first kid, who is now 14, if we, if we could just get past this, this diapers and daycare stage, <laughs> we Wakefields would be financially secure uh, because, there's, because there's no way that kids get, get more expensive than diapers and daycare, right? Like there's no way kids get more expensive than $150 a week, <laughs> right? Like that's what I felt. <laughs> well, uh, uh, as you can tell where I'm going with this, some 14 years later um, and now with three kids in the house, I stand fully corrected. <laughs> I don't know how it works. There's some secret person, and I think it's the same person who works for church and school and all my kids' extracurricular activities who find ways to secretly nickel and dime us because somehow my kids have become more expensive than they used to be when they were in diapers and in daycare. I heard something this week I thought was funny that that resonated with me and made me think about this uh, being out of diapers and hoping we were more financially secure as a result of it kind of a thing. It, it was somebody who said, there are many things in life <laughs> that are more important than money and they all cost money. <laughs> At least that's how it feels like, right? That's how it feels like to me. Because I know I want to be more generous. I believe in being generous. I praise Jesus. He was generous to me when I needed it. But it feels like, <laughs> Lord, life is expensive. Uh, how am I supposed to be generous when there seems to be so little left with which I can be generous? I mean, I thought when I was past diapers and daycare, we'd be able to be more generous. And we've grown in that, absolutely. But I think part of our problem is that instead of us controlling our money, our money controls us. I think that's where a lot of people live. Instead of us having charge of our finances and we being in control of our money, our money controls us. And so we end up saying things like we're talking about in this series we end up saying things like, I believe in generosity. I believe in it. Absolutely. But functionally, what's mine is mine. Like, I believe it. I think it's true. I hear you preach, Scott. <laughs> but functionally, what's mine is mine. I mean, I've earned this, right? Like, I've earned this. I have things I need. I also have things I want to buy. Well, lots of things I, I want. And I earned this money. And can't nobody, especially some preacher, tell me how to spend it because what's mine is mine. Part of the problem is certainly that instead of controlling our money and using it for the forward movement of the gospel, we let our money control us. We look at our bank statement and we reconcile accounts. And at the end of the month or whenever we do that, uh, for me, it's every two days. Whenever we look at our bank statement and reconcile our accounts, we think, how in the world did we end up spending this much on eating out? 
I mean, some people look at their bank statements and they think that. Some people out there, not here. So how do we get to this place? where functionally uh, the money controls us and we are not able to live out in practical terms what we know we believe, what we think is right, what we hear God telling us, what we know we're supposed to do. How do we get to this place where we believe in generosity but functionally we don't? How do we get to the place where we are controlled by our money instead of controlling it for God's purposes? Because listen, all our money is God's money. I just get happen, happen to get paid by the local church. Somebody else just happens to write a name on your paycheck. But it's all God's money. So how do we learn to be people who control it for the sake of God's goodness and glory being made known? Because, because though we'd like to admit it, said most simply, we function in this place. We really believe that contentment and security comes by acquiring stuff more than through a deeper relationship with Jesus. It sounds simple, but I think it's true. We actually believe that peace and contentment and safety come through financial security and acquiring things more than a deeper relationship with Jesus. And I know that's true. Because if we were all in a deeper relationship with Jesus than we were with material things and financial security, then we would be outrageously generous and tremendously content. But we are, most of us, neither of those two things. All the studies show it. So how do we learn to set our hopes on God and not money? On the riches we have in Jesus Christ and not earthly financial securities and material goods. If you haven't yet turned there, turn with me if you would to 1 Timothy 6. We're going to start in verse 6 here. to help us understand how we can reshape our hearts and minds around the glory of God and the forward movement of the gospel and less on the ties of this world and the anxieties and the fears that put us into a place of depending on financial security. Here in 1 Timothy 6, before we jump in, Paul is the older and wiser sort of ministry Yoda. Uh, he's writing here to Timothy, who is the young Jedi, about how to carry on the baton of ministry faithfully. And he, he's, he's telling him how to do that in a specific way by being generous. By being generous because there were those around Timothy in the church at Ephesus who were, who were taking the gospel for self, false teachers they were called, who were taking the gospel and perverting it for selfish means. Which, which is why he says this in the immediately preceding verse, verse 5, if we look back one, verse 5, he says, uh, Paul warning Timothy about these false teachers, they are those who, quote, imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Even as early as the uh, early church, just 
a couple to a few decades after Jesus left, there were spiritual snake oil salesmen who were using the ministry for personal gain. So that was happening even then in the early church. That's some of the context of this letter. But he says this to Timothy, verse 6, But you, Paul says, in other words, but you, but in contrast with those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We're going to spend some time on this because it's such a great phrase. Uh, All week long I've had this phrase going through my head. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Now there's great gain in godliness, of course, but not like the false teachers thought. Not like the false teachers that Paul is writing to Timothy about thought. Greatness must be coupled, Paul says, with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And here the gain that Paul is referring to is not financial, but spiritually at this point here. Paul is separating financial gain from contentment here. The world, Paul says, the world thinks contentment comes from acquiring stuff, from financial security, from earthly goods that keep me safe and secure. But Paul says that true believers know better. Paul says contentment comes from knowing instead that you are God's child, for example. We could characterize this in lots of ways. But contentment, for example comes in knowing that you are God's child. Galatians 3.26 says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We could say that contentment comes from knowing that you will be with God, for example, in eternity. John 5.24, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, meaning God, has eternal life. Contentment comes in knowing... Contentment comes in knowing that you are free from the weight and the burden of, of sin's power in your life to condemn you. That's contentment, Paul says. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says it's not going to come from money or from fame or from cars or from things or from power or position or a cute boy at your hip. That's what Paul's saying here. Look at the simple formula there in 6a. Godliness with contentment. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. After all, verse 7, keep moving. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. (laughs) Paul is like, you'd better learn to be content because you're not going to be able to take it with you when you die anyway. You brought nothing into the world. You're taking nothing out. Besides, he says, verse 8, besides You've got everything you need. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He's going back to the earthly sense of contentment. And in the earthly sense, financially, that security, you've got what you need, food and clothing, he says. He says, let me just define it for you. Let me be specific about what exactly you're going to need for earthly contentment. Food and clothing, with these we will be content. (laughs) There's a poet who wrote, Contentment is a constant feast. He is richest who requires the least. So to bring you up to speed, in case this is all kind of hard to follow, Paul says we need Jesus, food, and clothing. Jesus plus the basics. Remember the formula. Godliness plus contentment 
and he's just to find contentment for us. That's great gain. If you've got Jesus, food, and clothing, you are forever rich. You have everything you could possibly ever actually truly ultimately need. Let me say it this way, and I believe the scriptures ultimately teach this as truth, though it doesn't sound right to those of us uh, who are all raised to think and feel differently. 100% of the time, pursuing financial self-sufficiency to any degree more than Christ will result in your investment being 100% lost. Because you'll pervert your financial means for self anyway. When that's the idol. 100% of the time, pursuing financial self-sufficiency to a degree that delordifies Christ in your life. To coin a weird phrase on the spot. 100% of the time, pursuing financial self-sufficiency to a degree more than your relationship with Christ is going to result in 100% of your investment being lost. With money, yes, we gain some things here and now. But in Christ, Paul says, we gain everything actually worth having forever. We may someday become shirtless and shoeless and hungry and homeless. But if we have, Paul says here, if we have in us the life of Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. If we have Jesus in us, we have everything. Now he contrasts that with those who fall into the trap of money. Verse 9, but those who desire, notice that Paul says it's those who desire to be rich in earthly financial terms. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. He doesn't say those who desire to be rich may. He says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless, des- harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice he doesn't say there's anything inherently wrong with having wealth or being rich. I mean, just reread that. Paul's very clear. The problem isn't being rich, but wanting to be rich. Those who desire to be rich. For most of us, the problem isn't being rich. <laughs> For some of us, the problem may be being rich as we think of it. But most of us, the problem is wanting to be rich. He says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He continues this thought about the desire thing. Verse 10, for the love of money as opposed to the love of God. There's that desire thing again. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Here's the desire thing again. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It becomes something that you crave like a drug, like something you can't have enough of. You're never satisfied with it. There's always a need for more, which will continue to take us away from a depth of relationship with God by which he uses our lives and resources increasingly for his glory. He says, don't do this, Timothy. 
Don't be like that. Keep reading. As for you, verse 11, but as for you, a man of God, he's addressing Timothy specifically, but there are obvious applications to all of us. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In contrast to those who were false teachers they talked about, in contrast to those who pursue personal earthly gain, Jesus' people are to be people who fight for the gospel by pursuing spiritual qualities that result in generosity. Let me say that again carefully so that you understand I'm using these words carefully and intentionally uh, because we don't often think of generosity as a means of going to spiritual battle, but it is. We are to fight for the gospel by pursuing generosity, which means we continue to pursue Christ-likeness, steadfastness, gentleness, godliness, all those things that he has just named, so that we continue to become people who live like he lived to us, blessed to be a blessing, who extend the grace of God given to us to others. You show me a mature believer who has been fighting for the gospel for some time, and I can virtually guarantee you that that person pursues generosity with their life's resources because it's the inevitable result of seeking Jesus as the center of one's life. Because that person knows grace. That person values the unmerited favor of God given to them in a way which they inevitably get to the place where they say, I can't help but I want to give this away to others. Because the joy I have in the freedom from sin is something that can't be hoarded for oneself. That's how the gospel moves forward. fighting for the sake of the gospel's forward movement, empowered by a life that extends grace. (laughs) And that principle extends to our pocketbooks. Because generosity is just an extension of the grace given to us. Now, if you're reading along and I've just read, (laughs) you may at this point be saying, wait, preacher man. I don't see generosity in that list in verse 11 or when Paul talks about fighting in verse 12. True. But Paul has just talked about how false teachers pervert the gospel for selfish monetary gain. And now he's saying to Timothy, and by extension here soon, the rest of the congregation, we must pursue generosity with our life's resources as opposed to them who took it for self, we use resources for others, just like Jesus used his resources on the cross for us. Keep reading. He says this. As for the rich in this present age, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, verse 17 there, you come across that That part where Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, and we have another one of those, aha, gotcha, preacher man, kinds of moments. Like, like obviously, Paul's not talking about me, right? So this doesn't apply to me. Actually, sorry, it does, because rich in this present age, 2016, means that in our global economy today, 
If you make more than $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners on the planet. If you make twice that, you're in the top 7%. Yeah, but I don't feel rich. Okay, maybe. But that's probably because you want to be more rich. (laughs) And not because you aren't rich. Ending up being in the place where we don't feel rich is more about the desire to be rich, not because you aren't rich. So it's time to stop watching HGTV and wish that you were Chip and Joanna Gaines, okay? I mean, yes, I'd love them to come and redo my house too. But So fighting for the good fight of faith here means to pursue generosity. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We've already got everything we need. We really do. Sometimes we believe the lies of the world, and we think we don't have enough. But we really do. Uh, We've already got everything we need. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. It's a great passage. Matthew 6, 19, and uh, some of those verses following. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 25 says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar, sow, they neither, well, they do soar. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to this span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil, nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Listen, people, in material terms, it's all going to be okay. Not one of us in this room wants for much materially when it comes down to it. So... (laughs) So, Paul says, because of that, because God will take care of you, here comes the financial generosity part. Verse 18. They, meaning those who are rich in this present age, 95 plus percent of us, 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Then he jumps to the generous financial part here. To be generous and ready to share. Listen, this can be whatever, you know. This can be giving financially. It can be giving of money or of material goods. It can be baking a cake for somebody, taking a meal to somebody. It can be uh, giving somebody something you don't need that they do. It could be all manner of things. You don't, you don't have to have a 401k that's got you set for life in order for you to be generous. He says when we're like that, verse 19, thus we store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen, we don't earn anything in salvation by being generous. But we show we are of God and have Christ in us and are his child. We show that by being generous like God was generous to us. Because you see, at its root, generosity is extending the grace that we've received from God to others. Becoming a visible representation of the grace of God given to us, extended to others. Because the truth of the matter is, God was generous to us when we were stingy toward him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So friends, I want to end with a question. And let me set it up by saying, there, there, there's a phrase that we've talked about around here a few times here and there. Um, it's that your bank statement <laughs> is actually a theological statement. Uh, your, your, your bank statement is actually a theological document that tells the story of what you value and who you worship. So the question is, what does your theological statement <laughs> say about what you value and who you worship? Paul says to Timothy here, friends, Christians who are in deep relationship with God, give generously because they do not depend on money to do what only Christ can. Father in heaven, it's our, it's our heart's desire to live in ways that speak truth to who you are. We recognize that we have, in so many ways, lived lives um, that don't verify the claim that you are God and that we have fallen short of your glory. And so, in the quiet of this moment, Lord, we submit ourselves afresh to you, asking that you would take our brokenness, you would take the pieces of us that fall short, and that you would continue uh, through your work in us, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ being made known in us. You'd continue to shape us into men and women, into families, into a congregation that extend grace by using our material resources in ways that tell the story that you're a God of grace. Lord, we ask for each of us here today that you would um, make clear to us what that looks like, what that means, 
how to take a step toward that end, Lord. We ask that you would help us in community to ask those questions with one another in ways that, uh, that help us move forward so that ultimately, Lord, you are glorified and the gospel moves forward and people would come to know you. So, Father, we lift up these requests to you. We're grateful for your holy word that was lived in the flesh in Jesus and was written to us on the page so that we could know you. We ask that we continue to be people whose lives reflect the truth that you are God. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, we just want to invite you to uh, respond to um, the good news of freedom from sin being available in Jesus. The truth of the matter is that uh, before we came to know grace is real, each of us looked up functionally at our own creator and said, I got this. I don't need your help. Your, your, your infinite and eternal riches and grace, I'm good. And yet, and yet the Lord